Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Work Alchemy podcast, Conversations About Impact, where entrepreneurs and leaders share how they have impact, the sweet moments, and the challenges. I'm your host, Ursula York. I help entrepreneurs grow successful businesses that make a difference in the world. Impact is more than mission, more than purpose, even more than your why. Impact is where your unique self and business meet the world and contribute to making it better for all of us. These stories are here to inspire and energize you so you can have your own unique impact. Today's guest on the podcast is Mark Lesser. Mark is a CEO, Zen teacher, author, and leads trainings and talks worldwide. He has led mindfulness and emotional intelligence programs at many of the world's leading businesses and organizations, including Google, SAP, Genentech, and Kaiser. He is currently CEO of ZBA Associates, a company providing mindfulness-based leadership trainings and creating community by supporting ongoing groups. Welcome to the podcast, Mark. I'm delighted to have you here. It's uh, my pleasure to be here today. So you've had such an interesting path in your career, and uh, I'm sure you get asked this all the time, but I just I think it would be fascinating for people to hear at least the quick synopsis of how you came to this leadership work, because it's certainly not the conventional story. Yeah, it's, it's funny that um, as you say that, I what struck me was how I I really wanted my children to live much more conventional lives than I did. Cause there's something, <laughs> cause there's something, um, you know, as, uh, I don't know, as interesting as it is. I, 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 I think my bias is thinking that it can be more strenuous and, and difficult living such an unconventional life, unconventional path. So of course, my children have each taken paths that make me look conventional. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. <laughs> um, well, they've they've certainly learned from your experience, perhaps not in the way you intended. But. Right, right. I guess there's, you know, it's it's the uh, it's the old adage, right? They learn from what you do, not from what you say. So, <laughs> right, yeah, exactly. Um, well, just I mean, just a brief, briefly, you know, I think. Um, uh, I, I grew up on the East Coast. Uh, I'm a New Jersey boy, and I was um, living a pretty conventional life. Uh, I was a college student at at Rutgers, and but little by little, I, I I noticed I was getting more and more interested in oh, in existentialism, philosophy, humanistic psychology, spirituality, and I think. Um, yeah, a few a few books really really grabbed my attention, and I, uh, you know, read and started reading. You know, Alan Watts and The Way of Zen was the, I think the first mm. Zen book that came my way, and it just seemed so obvious that I, I needed to do that work, or I needed to 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 work on my own how I was seeing the world interpreting the world, my own emotional life, I felt like I, I needed to, and, and, and also I think just the, this, uh, this possibility of uh, self-actualization and finding a different kind of freedom were just, they just totally grabbed my, my attention, my being, and I took a one-year leave of absence uh, to uh, explore 
that world and and came to um, to the West Coast to San Francisco, and and I um, wandered into the San Francisco Zen Center, and that ended up being a place where I stayed for for ten years. Um, um, wow. Again, my 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 parents not so thrilled about this turn of events. Uh, I, it's funny, I still have the letter that I wrote to them explaining why this was the real education that I that I needed, um, <laughs> and it was it was a fantastic education in terms of um, both. I'd say in in training the mind, in um, you know, in living in community, and also what what was a very much a surprise was how important uh, work became, and this uh, the practice of I- integrating a contemplative practice, mindfulness practice, and and work, and and my uh, I got a real taste of that by spending years in a Zen monastery in the Tassajara Zen Mountain Center kitchen. And then later I was the director. And and this kind of set me on a path. I, I, I remember wondering, you know, why isn't everyone doing this? It just seems so obvious that that the more the more you could be focused and flexible and connected, the better work was gonna go. And you know, I, I ended up going right from there uh, to business school. I, I went back and finished my undergraduate <laughs> degree went to business school at New York University and then uh, started a publishing company. I started a company called Brush Dance, which was one of the first uh, companies in the world to make uh, things out of recycled paper. We were a, a greeting card and calendar company that I, I ran for, for 15 years. Anyhow, that's, that's kind of the, the part of my story, anyhow. Well, and then you, you've come to uh, do a lot of this leadership work with companies like Google, and, yeah. and um, that again is a it seems like a you know different path. Or, yeah. Well, I think interestingly enough, um, uh, because of my, I think the combination that I had this uh, very in depth, um, you know, Zen practice and pretty in-depth business practice, having gone to business school and then been CEO of a of a growing, you know, f- fairly large publishing company. When when Google was in the very early days of wanting to create a um, a mindfulness and emotional intelligence program for leaders, um, I I had the perfect resume. Um, that they they were looking for someone that had this this kind of uh, somewhat unusual skill set, and and that turned out to be uh, just a wonderful um, environment and e- experiment for me of of working inside of Google and developing a a program and then creating uh, built creating and building an organization to to spread. Um, mindfulness and emotional intelligence around, around the world. Mm -hmm. Well, one of the phrases you use in the book that I was so taken by, you call it the full catastrophe, which is work, marriage, children, parents, everything. And, and uh, talk, could you talk a little bit about that? And and how do you maintain mindfulness with the full catastrophe going on? Yeah. Well, that's, that's um, that phrase um, borrowed from, uh, it's the title of one of John Kabat-Zinn's early books on meditation, mm. 
mm-hmm. which he borrowed from Zorba the Zorba the Greek. <laughs> um, you know, it's a kind of a famous line where where um, someone asks the, this you know the, this character Zorba, you know, um, are you married? Do you have children? He says yes. M- work, marriage, children—the full catastrophe. Um, <laughs> and and I think um, I think it's a light-hearted way of of noticing that um, this human life uh, is, is pretty, pretty difficult. You know, this, if we actually pay attention to uh, what it takes, um, you know, there's the, there's the outward balance of making a living and being in relationship. And, and then there's all these enormous problems of our political situation and climate change and inequality and then there's just the, the underneath that, like we're human beings who um, we, we are filled with emotions that don't, you know, that are not, it's not like we can control them. Uh, many of us have this really strong inner critic. And then there's these larger questions like, what are we doing here? And what is consciousness? And, and knowing that we also, um, we know deep within us that we're here for a short time, you know, and that we're, we're here on this, on this planet, um, you know, and that we, we, we will lose at some point, we will lose everything. And that that's, um, that's pretty daunting, can be pretty daunting, this, this human life. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So what, what impact do you think these seven practices have? What are you seeing in organizations like Google? and others. Yeah, I think of the impact on on a few different levels. There's the the individual level, maybe the team level, and then there's the the level of culture. At the individual level, I see people having this uh, insight of that they are um, not victims of their own thoughts and and emotions and this this movement from a being on autopilot to having more choice and this is huge this is this can be really huge yeah absolutely i um i'm really curious to to get into the the individual practices and talk more about those can you give us a quick overview first about what the seven practices are and then we can go into each one more deeply sure um it's funny how much i I like um, it, actually even just saying the seven practices, right? Love the, <laughs> love the work, do the work, don't be an expert, connect to your pain, connect to the pain of others, depend on others, and keep making it simpler. Hmm. And, and I think that there's, they're quite um, poetic and beautiful. And at the same time, I think once you unpack them, they are uh, very practical. And I think they're meant to be uh, actually incorporated and practiced in in our daily lives. Mm. Well, you surprised me with a couple of them, like five and six in particular, the ones that surprised me a little bit. So I, I, but let's start at the beginning. I, one thing you say is that the secret to success is to stay in love. So how does that relate to love the work, which is the first practice? Yeah, well, often I, I've noticed that when people hear that phrase, love the work, they immediately think, well, I don't love my work, or so many people don't love their work. And, 
and to me, I'm doing a, a little bit of a, you know, a little bit of an Aikido move here because I'm not, I'm not referring to the 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 outward, the conventional, the description of the work that that people are doing in the world. I'm kind of turning it, turning the work to mean the work of self-awareness, the work of mindfulness and emotional intelligence, the work, the work of knowing yourself and loving yourself and being, and this work of moving from uh, being on autopilot uh, to, to having more choice. So it's loving, loving that work, loving the, 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 you know, the difficult work of, of, of relationship, uh, starting with ourselves. So this is, this I think is um, kind of a huge secret to, uh, to our own sense of satisfaction, well-being, and success in the world. Mm. Well, um, yeah, it's great to have you explain that because I agree. I think people see love the work and you're talk- they think you're talking about passion for the work or in some way being so engaged that it's going to miraculously make you a mindful leader. So um, it's good to have you clarify that. So in the in this is there anything in particular about that first practice that you think trips people up or that that is something people really need to be mindful of around uh, putting that into practice? Yeah, well I think I think maybe this is where um where where the first and second practices are related in that often you can't really love the work until you do the work. And, and that, um, you know, one of the things that I find is I, I, I often tell people you, you need to, you need to actually see what it's like to have a, a regular meditation practice, uh, to do, you know, to, to, to do a, um, to do some kind of retreat is often uh, a way in for people to experience what it's like uh, to to go deeper in this practice of, of meditation and, and mindfulness, and that once you get a once you experience it for yourself and notice the impact that it has in your work and in your relationships, it's a lot easier to love it, right? <laughs> because you know. I hear from a lot of people say, well, this, this is boring or I don't have time and, uh, or I sit down and I find, uh, I, I, I just experience that I sit there and I'm, and I'm thinking and thinking as well. Yeah, that's, that's part of the work. I, I never said it was going to be easy. Um, and it's, and it's not, um, and, and it's not easy, I think, um, beginning, uh, but, but it gets easy once we experience the, the changes and benefits of it. And then we can fall in love with the work itself. Hmm. Well, uh, you talk in the book about dedicated practice versus integrated practice and, and uh, the dedicated practice being just doing it for its own sake, essentially and integrated is kind of seeing some sort of outcome and I'm paraphrasing. So feel free to correct me. Well, I, the, I, you know, to me, dedicated practice is uh, taking taking the time to step out of the activity of our lives, right? So that, and this would essentially be meditation practice, maybe walking meditation, journal writing, I think can be a form of a dedicated practice. And then integrated practice is how, 
how you then bring that sensibility, those, those aspirations, those lessons into your daily, into your daily life. And that, and that I think they, they, they work off each other so well, because, you know, uh, there's so, so much that we can learn about ourselves in our work and in our relationships, and then bring it into our, our daily uh, meditation practice as well. Hmm. Well, as part of the, um, you know, the do your work practice, you talk about the challenges of adopting compassion, acceptance, self or non-judgment. And you, you talk a little bit about Kristen Neff's work. Kristen Neff is a self-compassion researcher. And um, she talks about the four challenges of that being fear of passivity, apathy of ethics, no motivation to change and reduction of effort. I think people have this misconception that if you adopt this kind of acceptance stance and compassion that you're never going to do anything. You're just going to park yourself in a Barker lounger and that will be the end. Yes. No, it's, I think it's a very powerful uh, assumption that, that we have uh, in our culture that right in order to get things done, you need to be hard on yourself. Um, you need to really push yourself up, right. Other, as you're saying, uh, uh, otherwise, um, You'll you'll just be you know um, sipping margaritas on the beach all day. Um, but one of the things I I notice you know I, I do a fair amount of uh, work with with leaders in companies and and I'll suggest that just as an experiment that they try being kinder to themselves for you know for a week or or two and just notice are you are you less productive when you are being kind to yourself than when you're beating yourself up. And, and it, it, it never fails that people actually discover that actually more productive when we are kinder to ourselves. And um, again, it can be, it can be surprising, but it's like, if you just step back and think about it, really, why, why, what, what use is it to, to be mean to ourselves or to under this? It's, it's actually kind of undermining. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's it's got kind of amazing in a way that it's so surprising because if you I mean if you see children for example they they would normally flourish under a kinder sort of regime <laughs> rather than a uh, you know something uh, a harsher kind of environment with a lot of criticism and we subject ourselves to that with inner dialogue. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and what I like about you know you mentioned Kristen Neff who has done some some really good research on this where she's kind of measuring. The, the results and finds that um, people being more uh, self-compassionate leads to better results. You know, I got to do some, um, I did a training where I was uh, kind of co-leading with, with Kristen. Um, and one of the things that she shared with me, which I, I really liked was, and, and I, I go through this a lot too with questions about language in the business world. And she mentioned that uh, a lot of companies kind of had trouble with this word uh, self-compassion, the word compassion. So she just um, started instead using the word uh, cultivating inner strength. Mm. And I thought, that's, that's really good. Every, you know, all, all leaders, all people in the work world could, could get, get on board with this practice of cultivating inner strength. Yeah, that's a great way of putting it. I, I like that. And I can see how that would be 
um, perhaps more acceptable <laughs> or more more able to receive that, I guess, is the thing. You know, I understand, you know, that, that, again, language is important. Compassion, compassion still has this baggage of being either soft or um, something, you know, from the religious world and not, mm. not, not something that is aligned with the world of business and work. Right. Yeah. Somehow it's, it's allowing something rather than al- allowing any kind of behavior rather than, um, it's true meaning. So, yeah. Well, the third practice, don't be an expert. You tell this great story of, of leading a group in Tokyo and how things unfolded. Would you be willing to share that story? Sure. You can embarrass me. It's fine. Go right ahead. <laughs> <laughs> so that was, that was that was a while ago, but these things still happen. You know, this was this was a um, I I was flown to Tokyo to lead a retreat of a group of uh, CEOs and their and their partners, and I, I I thought that it was all clear and arranged that they wanted a Zen retreat, that they wanted to do meditation and different mindfulness practices, and uh, off we went. It was a supposed to be a three-day retreat and it was uh, I think it was early in day two I was just kind of checking in with everyone and I went around and asked everyone to say a word about describing how it was going and I heard things like bored confused unhappy and um, right my my, my very uh, expensive Zen training kicked in and I re- and I, I realized things were not going well here right and it was um, it was stunning. I mean, I noticed that my I felt like I was failing. I, I was brought in to facilitate this retreat, and, and um, people were not getting it, were not happy. And um, I noticed that I, I wanted to run away. I wanted to hide. Um, I, you know, is there some way I could plow through this? But, but no, I, I, needed to, I needed to step back and just... Um, apologize and say clearly uh you know things are not going well uh what's what can we do to make this better what's what's working and what's not working so this was i had to employ this kind of practice number three which was in that moment i had to let go of my expertise and just be curious and 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 it was actually a very important moment when when what i learned was that they there really wasn't real buy-in about they didn't really want so much quiet and contemplative work they really wanted to be having conversations with each other about the transitions that they were in in their lives and the current challenges and opportunities and and i was able to completely uh just revise my agenda and and i was there i was there to serve them so i thought this was a this was a i thought a poignant and practical story from my own life about don't be an expert. Yeah, I, I, it absolutely was not my intention to embarrass you, but I I think it's, I think it's such a powerful story because first of all, it illustrates your willingness to be open to what people had to say, and then your willingness to change everything up and respond and create an experience that was actually valuable to them. And to me, that's such a powerful example of leadership because you're, you're not pretending that 
everything's fine and that you know best, even though everyone's, uh, you know, not enjoying the experience. So um, I, I just thought it was a great example of you being able to adjust to a situation. And that's, that's something great leaders do. Well, it's interesting. I'm reminded of, you know, what I was saying earlier about going from autopilot to having more choice. And, and I, I see, I see it so often in, in meetings and even conferences where it gets so, it gets so deadening when, you know, when you're somehow convinced that you're doing it right or, or that it, it feels too risky to, to somehow stop and ask, you know, how's this going? How's, you know, how's this meeting going? How's this conference going? And taking, taking steps needed to make it more relevant, more, more alive. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, creates a better experience for everyone, even if there's a short period of discomfort. So, yeah, it it can be, it can be uncomfortable, right? It's very comfortable Mm -hmm. when you're the expert and, uh, and it can be uncomfortable when you're like, what, what, what can I learn from this situation? Yeah. Well, related to that is, is, uh, practice number four, which is connect to your pain. And uh, it's one of the ones that kind of surprised me, but you know, in the service of inner knowledge and awareness, it, it made sense. But can you speak a little bit more about why is that so important that you you go in that direction in terms of your awareness? Yeah, I think that um, the conventional way to deal with any kind of difficulty or discomfort is to push it away suppress it, pretend it's not there, power, mm-hmm. power through. And, and, and even using this example that I was just talking about in Tokyo, I think part of it was just noticing that this was a very uncomfortable situation and that, and that other people were, were uncomfortable. Something was not, was not working here. And um, we all needed to just rec- recognize that. And from there, we could take steps to find solutions. So I think I think this this practice of um, on many, again on many levels that what I'm what I'm describing here feels like at a very kind of practical level of noticing what isn't working, noticing what's uncomfortable, and and taking steps to to change it. Um, I'm also I think talking about this practice at a very kind of personal and, and human level of, um, of just noticing, not pushing away uh, our own longing, our own difficulties, our own loneliness, and that through, through it's, it's working with and through what is difficult that the real possibilities and real satisfaction and joy emerge. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, how does I mean to move into the the next um, the next practice is uh, connect to the pain of others and that's one of the ones that really surprised me in in the way that you stated that so can you talk a little bit about that and and uh, how we uh, you you refer to it already we spend a lot of time and energy avoiding our own pain and, and the pain of others. And so why is this important for a leader? Yeah, well, I think there's, there's actually quite a bit of uh, evidence now to, uh, 
the research done about empathy and empathy as a as a practice and essentially you know empathy is the practice of connecting to the the pain the suffering of others and at the same time you know not falling into um, contagion not being able to discern other people's emotions from our own emotions but the a lot of the research shows that the more we have power the more the more we're in a leadership position there's a tendency to have less and less empathy mm-hmm. um, and that it actually takes some awareness and practice to just to, to stay in touch with the feelings of the people that we're that we're working with um, so and so partly uh, it's like the power of building really great trusting cultures and workplaces is so much of it is around really connecting at a at a human level with others expressing seeing seeing beyond the the roles that we're you know in in the world of work we do we all do play a particular role and there needs to be clarity and boundaries and understanding of those roles but underneath that there needs to be this expression of real care and concern and in order to build trusting trusting environments and cultures. And I think this is that practice of kind of recognizing that so much of our our common humanity is, you know, connecting to the pain of others. Hmm. Well, one of the things that you say in the book, you actually quote Peter Drucker, that famous quote of his about culture eats strategy for breakfast. And it really speaks to that issue of culture and, and the role of leaders in in building a culture. So this is one of the the key aspects, and and the next practice as well. Yeah, the um, you know, and I think when we say culture, I think you know, there's there's the culture, even of the the teams that we that we might be on. Even if we're running a one person business, we're creating culture with the, the way in which we relate to our customers, um, our vendors. So it's interesting, this, this culture is a very all-encompassing way of what's the, what are the norms, what are the, what's the level of self-awareness and emotional intelligence and trust that we're working with. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, so practice, um, practice six, s- somewhat surprising because our, our culture so much emphasizes uh, self-reliance and independence. And, and of course, we all do need to be independent and self self reliant but there's also it, it's profound i think when we when we practice especially especially as leaders or team members or family members how much we actually are uh, dependent on on others i mean there's the obvious ways like for clean air and clean water we're dependent on others but but it goes really much deeper than that there's there's we're dependent on others for our, in a way, for our own, our own identities, our relationships are so uh, enmeshed, uh, in, in with relationships with with key people in our lives. So just just noticing mm-hmm. and practicing with um, the ways the ways that we are uh, interdependent. Well, one of the things you talk about in the book is, uh, is a quote from the book is leadership and mindfulness are both aimed at seeing more clearly and living in reality. And it just, 
it really struck me as being related to this whole interrelationship um, and connection with others, because I think relationships are one area that people have a lot of difficulty seeing the reality because we have our own subjective view. And how, how does, how does, how can a, a great leader, how can a leader be better at seeing the reality of the situation and maintain compassion at the same time? Yeah. I mean, this is, um, I think this is really the core, the core practice is not being quite so tossed around by our own stories and our own interpretations of, of reality. And as you say, this is, uh, this is particularly challenging um, in relationships and particularly challenging in relationships that we have at work where there's that pressure to perform and, and for results and to get things done. And yet we all, we all come with our own particular identities and level of self-awareness and emotional intelligence. So I think if we're all, if we're all more skillfully and compassionately working toward, toward seeing as clearly as, as possible. And, and, you know, I'm, I'm very fond of saying that, um, you know, that fear, fear and greed have been very popular for thousands of years. (laughs) And, and that we and that we are we are very sensitive creatures and we easily you know we easily close our minds and our hearts and some people easily kind of lash out when we when we feel threatened in in any way right so kind of shifting from those more reactionary ways of being from closing down or lashing out and can we can we actually bring awareness to what's 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 happening? What's actually happening here, in my own experience, and and under and cultivating cultivating more um, responsiveness and understanding and less reaction. Hmm. Well, um, that it's certainly a challenge for all of us. I think in any kind of relationship, and it's especially important for leaders to have that level of clarity, that that uh, ground truth, as you said in the book. Right. Yep. Well, the the last practice is keep making it simpler, which I think will be a big relief to everyone who hears that one. <laughs> yeah, I, I notice. Um, uh, I notice when I when I get to practice number seven, people br- breathe like a sigh of relief because, in a way, um, right? These how can I how can I do these practices? How can I incorporate these things in my already overflowing full life well just just look at making it simpler look at what is what is the most important thing what really matters um and and this um you know this story that i tell in the beginning of that chapter about uh, changing our relationship with our problems not not wanting uh not trying to think that the idea is to have all our problems uh, go away, but instead to to recognize that in some way we all have just the right amount of problems. Um, and this may you know this might be hard, but we you know to again this is that um, that practice of uh, uh, seeing uh, seeing with more uh, with more clarity. Hmm. Well, one of the 
things that uh, I got me thinking as I was reading the book is that uh, something you talk about is is letting go of wanting things to be different, but yet you're a member of the Social Venture Network, which is a pioneer in socially responsible business. So in that work with the with S- SVN, it's really around changing the world in a way. And so how do you reconcile paying attention to ways you can change the world versus letting go of wanting things to be different? Well, this is one of the great paradoxes. <laughs> it, it is. You know, it's, it's a little bit like even... Um, you know, people come to meditation practice or mindfulness practice and and they're told, you know, uh, let go of your effort or let go of wanting anything to be different. And and that's true. There's something there's something powerful about the practice of accepting what is starting starting by noticing what is. But of course, we all we all need to develop some some aspiration some vision of where we where what what is it we're working on what what is it we're wanting to shift either either internally you know maybe we want to uh, cultivate our ability to be better with conflict or to have difficult conversations um, or you know in the business world we're always um, we're always aiming to meet certain whether it's revenue revenue goals or new product goals so it's this um it's this really interesting dance of of being able to do both to starting with really noticing what is right and and accepting what is as a starting point and at the same time to be working working for for changes and for solutions so this is one of those, um, and, and it's interesting in one of, um, you know, Peter Senge, who wrote, uh, a book maybe 30 years ago now called the fifth discipline. Mm-hmm. He, he calls this practice, uh, creative tension, okay. the, this, this ability, this ability to, to see that we're right in the midst of, of these, uh, changes and, uh, and that we are. We are aiming to to meet certain goals or to grow certain certain competencies, and to, he, he describes that being able to stay with it, to staying with these uncomfortable places as maybe the most important capacity for a leader. Hmm. Yeah, I was just thinking of that term, and and uh, uh, I think that is a great way of of looking at it as this ongoing tension between the two. Yeah, well. Mark, the way I always end these interviews is a rapid round of three questions. Are you are you game? Sure. Great. So the first one is, what's the biggest thing you've learned about having impact? Um, I think so much of impact is is around one's presence, developing developing the body in a way of someone who can just show up fully. And meet meet people and situations fully. So the, I think the the power of presence. And I noticed that uh, in myself. And I I train a lot of people in things like leading meetings and speaking. And and people get often get so caught up in in the words. And to me, it's it's beneath the words. It's more in in your presence. Hmm. 
Well, the second question is, what's the one thing you've consistently done that's contributed to your success and impact the most? Well, I'll, I'll, maybe I'll state what feels like the obvious is, is that I have a very regular meditation practice. Um, I think that, that to me, it's a little bit like the, um, you know, Stephen Covey calls it sharpening the saw. Right. Uh, so that's that's one of the core ways um, that that both um, my my daily practice and also I find it really important to to do retreats to do a week long and sometimes even longer longer retreats. So stepping stepping out and and devoting that time, um, I find a really good use of time. Hmm. Well, the last question is, what's one insider piece of advice you'd share with somebody who's saying, I want to have impact, I want to contribute in a meaningful way? What would you say to them? Yeah, what um, I, I think this is something I talk about in practice seven, keep making it simpler, is that uh, a, a lot of people I find ask me about career advice, and I'm, I, I like to turn it around and say, I think really we all only have one career and that's the career of developing your own self-awareness and helping others. And, um, that's, that tends to be my, uh, I'm sticking with that, um, that advice. <laughs> that's great. Well, Mark, thank you so much for being here. I, I know your book is going to be a powerful guide for people looking to improve their leadership and really develop mindfulness in a way that's going to make a difference in their organizations. So thank you so much for being here and, and talking with us about the book. Thank you, Ursula. I really appreciate it. So if people want to get in touch with you, um, what's the best way for them to reach you? And, and where can they find your book? Um, my website is Mark Lesser, M-A-R-C-L-E-S-S-E-R.net. And my book can be found easily, you know, online or in bookstores, um, any place books are sold. You can find Seven Practices of a Mindful Leader. Great. Well, thank you again, Mark, and I uh, so appreciate the work you're doing in the world. Thank you, and thanks for the work you're doing. Thank you. Join us for more episodes. Subscribe to the Work Alchemy podcast on iTunes or Stitcher Radio so you'll know as soon as new episodes are available. You can even help spread the word. Leave a review if you like what you've heard. Thanks for listening. Until next time, for ongoing support so you can have your own impact, join our community of entrepreneurs like you by liking the Work Alchemy Facebook page.